0: I keep thinking this is common knowledge and then realizing it's not. There is plenty of food to go around. The issue is it's just not going to places where there's hunger. It has been hundreds of years since a famine was actually caused by there's not enough food. Welcome back to Farm to Daver. Today we're talking grain supplies with Maria from Fayetteville, activist, political knower of things <laughs> <laughs> and opinion haver. So we're going to nerd out a little bit about grain supplies, grain trade, some of the kerfuffle that happened in, you know, I keep saying earlier this year, it was last year now. It was. Maria, say hi to the people.
1: <laughs> hi, everyone. Thanks so much for having me, Sarah. I'm so excited to learn about the grain trade.
0: Oh, I know you are. <laughs> I really am. <laughs> It was like, uh, it's a very niche specialty. And you've heard me yell at you about this a couple of times, but we're going to be thorough this time and it's going to be
1: so much good. Uh, yeah. Well, I'm sure, I'm sure our listeners can't wait. Your listeners can't wait. (laughs) Let me rephrase that. I'm sure the listeners can't wait. There we are. There are (laughs) listeners.
0: You've heard some of this shtick before, but like, you know, it's weird. Nobody really talks to the public about this stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like people are often like, oh, I'm sorry. I, just, I don't understand that much about the grain trade. And I'm like, because everyone lies to you about it. Don't worry. That's not your problem.
1: The grain trade? Yeah. They're Is like, that think it's called?
0: Or just, yeah, like, you know, during the summer and spring yeah. when there was this big flap about grain in Ukraine and they're like, everybody was going, oh, there might be a shortage. And I would tell people like, actually, if you do the math, uh, mm-hmm. there's plenty. It just needs to move places where it's not going right now. I mean, mm-hmm. it's
1: not helpful if it sits in a silo and molds. No. Not huh. so much. Shocking. Yeah. Well, that's the American way. Yeah. So or maybe uh, we just do that with soybeans. Uh, yeah. So it depends on the year. Um. <laughs> <laughs> and who's in office and how much they hate China.
0: Yeah so, like,
1: yeah. so I'll kind of tell people, like, you know, actually, if you do the math and you,
0: you look at the stats, because those are publicly available. Yeah. It turns out all the grain traders and the folks who are, like, on the news saying there's not enough are just lying to you. You know, and the people... Big grain like, lying to the people? Big grain... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and medium and little grain, like they're kind of all in there together. And it was wild because uh, people would say things like, "I just don't understand that much about like the grain system." And I'm like, "Does does anyone ever do we cover that in school? No. Does anybody who's doing grain trading ever sit you down and go, like, "Well, here's my futures, you know, like <laughs> portfolio, and here's why I've made these choices, and here's a completely honest, non-biased disclosure of where I think the price is going to go." That never happens. No. And so it was wild to me that people would say things like, "Oh, I just I'm just really ignorant about this topic," and I'm like, "No shit, everyone lies." <laughs>
1: And it's beneficial to big grain for us to be ignorant on the topic. Yeah. Well,
0: and not just that, but there used to be a lot more public investment in information about food stocks, you know, mm-hmm. like particular during the post-war era, mm-hmm. the Cold War, food supplies were a big topic. We had the Green Revolution because people realized like, oh, we're actually having trouble keeping up with food production in some areas. And we've been having decades of conversation about whether or not the Green Revolution was the right response to that problem. But everyone understood the problem existed, right? Mm-hmm. That prognostication and that, like, knowledge base of, like, what food production and availability looks like has pretty much evaporated since the end of the Cold War, actually. This is part of what I was discovering as the Ukrainian grain crisis was unfolding, was that the kinds of people that you could call up and ask, hey, is how much grain is there, didn't exist anymore. Yeah. All the folks who do that kind of prognostication have wound up doing water or climate change.
1: Well, those are pretty important. Yeah, those are pretty
0: it. important, but... If you're trying to do policy about supplies of something, apparently there aren't jobs to do that with food anymore, which you'd think would be a big deal. I just kind of forgot to hire people for that and have public funding for that. The Trump administration made this quite a bit worse when they... Shocking. Yeah. Remember a few years ago when they started busting up the USDA ERS, the Economic Research Service, because they weren't creating the data about climate that he wanted. (laughs) So he was like, I'm going to move you to Kansas City. I do remember that. That wasn't the
1: only agency. Uh, Was it?
0: ERS was the main one.
1: was the main one, okay.
0: Yeah, so basically he imploded the Agricultural Statistics Service because the, he, they weren't <laughs> producing the numbers he wanted, which is total autocrat behavior. But that's <laughs> part of why the U.S. didn't have that info coming out. Also, a lot of other countries just didn't have research services dedicated to that or they weren't putting out or people weren't listening. There's kind of like a whole tier of problems.
1: What do you think that is? That stopped being something that we followed so closely after the Cold War? Do you think it was a sense of nationalistic pride that we could have that information to to boast that in a capitalist society, we have X amount to feed our people as opposed to, you know, the... Well,
0: yeah, what's been the dominant narrative of what's wrong with the food system for the Uh last 30 years? Overproduction. Mm. It never occurred to anybody that we could run out of food. (laughs) You know, yeah. like in the last few decades. So the last time, at least in wealthier countries, the last time we had an actual possibility of a shortage of wheat was 1972. Wow, a year before yeah. Roe. Yeah, the early to mid 70s. So anybody who is involved in policy or grain trading at that time has since retired or died. It has been an entire generation and then some since we've actually had to deal with this as a real problem. So I think Mm -hmm. that's a big part of why nobody really saw a point in having hiring pipelines and training pipelines for having those kinds of experts. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're the federal government and you're like, well, we have this much amount of money to dedicate to all these problems that we foresee coming up in the future, Mm -hmm. when would it ever occur to you that maybe there's not enough food would be
1: one of them? (laughs) Yeah, that's a good point.
0: Yeah, and so everybody who wants to become a pundit about... <laughs> you know stocks and supplies uh-huh. went into again water climate lithium rare earth metals those kinds of commodities mm-hmm. food supplies just weren't on the radar as a thing that like could be in short supply at least in wealthy countries so that's really really interesting to me you know we have obviously a lot of hunger problems still globally to be very clear i keep thinking this is common knowledge and then realizing it's not there is plenty of food to go around the issue is it's just not going to places where there's hunger it has been hundreds of years since a famine was actually caused by There's not enough food. What actually happens is there's not enough food in a specific place, and it's not able to come in from other places with more food Mm -hmm. for political reasons, usually, is what happens. So the Irish potato famine, for example, the potato disease wiped out potato crops all over Europe. Ireland is the only place where people starved.
1: Well, wasn't that because the English were taking Mm -hmm. their their crops? Mm -hmm.
0: So it was a political problem. It was not a potato disease that really caused An English problem, which I Mm -hmm. would argue there's many, many, (laughs) many many throughout the world. There's some Tumblr post circulating around that was like, what parasite caused the Irish potato famine? And someone was like, I know it's the English, but I can't say that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I would argue that's a correct answer, though. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so England had actually been colonizing Ireland in much the same way it did North America mm-hmm. um, since the Tudor period. They just claim big chunks of it, carve it up into feudal estates for various English notables, grow grain there, and then export the grain to England. So they were turning Ireland into a grain plantation. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of the the estates there and colonial projects were literally called plantations. So like, don't tell me it wasn't a plantation, not run the same way as the North American ones, but the idea was the same. We're going to seize all this land. We're going to use it to produce stuff for the home country Uh and fuck all the guys who live
1: there. Right. Well, that's the English way.
0: Yeah. The colonial way. So what you wind up having is the folks who are like in Ireland, actually living there from Mm -hmm. Ireland, because all this land is being seized, they're getting crowded onto smaller and smaller plots of land. Eventually the only way you can feed enough people to survive on small plots of land as potatoes. And that's why they were growing nothing but potatoes. So
1: they didn't just love French fries.
0: No, it was mostly boiled also. Cause, oh, Because you need oil to fry potatoes and they couldn't grow, they had no space to grow anything to make oil. So it was pretty grim.
1: And the English.
0: Yeah. So that's why when a potato plague comes through that wipes out one crop, then you mm-hmm. have mass starvation. It wasn't because like, I think there was a lot of stuff at the time that was like, wow, these... Idiot Irish people, you know, like only yeah. want to eat potatoes. What's wrong with them? And that yeah. is not what happens. Like, nobody goes, I just want to eat this one cheap staple. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like we still see that attitude quite a bit when we're talking about like hunger and malnutrition and the like poor diet now. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, these idiots are just eating like this cheap, accessible food that's yeah, available in bulk.
1: To, yeah
0: we never ask ourselves why people might do that because that would mean asking questions about the power structure and neither the English nor today's upper class wants to talk about that. So
1: absolutely. We're here to
0: talk about grain. With that quick little preamble, food shortages are real and they rarely come from there's actually not enough food in the world. It usually comes from political problems causing it to not move where it needs to go. So that's going to be kind of the, the foundation of our discussion today. If you'd like to know more, there's a little economist... (laughs) <laughs> Won a Nobel Prize. Um, <laughs> named Amartya Sen, who had some thoughts about this, and you should check him out. Okay, so as we go through this stuff, we're talking about food supplies, serious political issues, hunger. This is some serious and heavy stuff. We're going to try and keep it listenable. We will often laugh so we don't cry. That's the Southern activist way. It's not because the problem isn't serious. It's because, oh, we got to live with ourselves. And this stuff just keeps happening, and it's really important to understand it. You know, you got to wake up every day ready to fight God if you're going to make it in this world. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes this is how we do it. Yeah. So we're going to get into some really technical information, some very heavy topics. But we're, we're going to try and live with ourselves. And just like having experienced some, some food insecurity in my life, it's not a topic that's unknown to me. It's not like, oh, we have to like, be respectful of this thing that happens to other people. This is the thing that I've had to deal with personally. Um, not at the scale that a lot of folks do. Um, But I think there's also something about the experience of living with food insecurity in one of the wealthiest countries in the world. And I think almost certainly the one that has the most arable square miles per person Mm -hmm. in the world, and you can still go hungry, I think really highlights to me the fact that hunger and actual lack of food, the Venn diagram has very little overlap. Hunger is typically an economic and a political problem. So we're going to highlight that. And then we're talking about problems that you know maybe we personally have experienced this is not hypothetical for us. A lot of us in the US have like dealt with this and it's going to show up differently for us in the US when we have food insecurity than in other places where like there's just not enough grain in the country. But again, just want to point out, this is not hypothetical for a lot of us, even in the U.S. So I don't like to talk about this as a problem that, like, affects those people in those places. It's an all-of-us problem,
1: Mm -hmm. and
0: it's typically caused by people in wealthier countries. So this is an us problem. Yeah. So we're going to try and keep a sense of humor about it, but that doesn't mean it's not serious, and it's very real.
1: Well, just so we have a foundational knowledge, Sarah, could you explain to us, to me, (laughs) how the global grain system works?
0: Yeah, let me give you the entire global food system in 30 seconds now. <laughs> so caveat, I work in produce. When the Ukrainian war was going down and people started talking about food, I just like the information felt off. I was like, the vibes are off. Mm. The way they're talking about food trade is just not consistent with how I understand food shipments to work. Yeah. As someone who works in agriculture, however, I do work in produce. It moves kind of differently. So let me check in with my colleagues in grain. Just do some fact checks and some gut checks to make sure that like what I'm picking up is actually what's happening out here. You also have to be careful and mindful, I would say, about who you check in with in the grain trade. (laughs) Because the way she put it was so great. She was like, well, a lot of people have a reason to be bullish about grain prices. Bullish means you expect and you want the prices to go up. Mm -hmm. You know, because we talk about there's bear and bull markets. A bull will kill you by throwing you up in the air and a bear kills you by chucking you down with its big old paws. And so that's how we remember is a bull market is when things are going up and a bear market is when they're going down. So folks in the grain trade have really good reasons to to want grain prices to go up, to mm-hmm. portray the situation as one in which rising prices are inevitable Yeah, because they trade grain for a living. Yeah. So you got to be mindful about that, right? So I was checking in with some colleagues. You know, like different people occupy different positions within the industry. And so sometimes you got people who are like, actually, I have really good reason to have a more critical eye about where things are going, just based on like who your client list is and like what your actual position in the industry is. So... I found some people with more motivation to be a little bit more critical about what's happening in the markets. And I talked sure. to them. <laughs> yeah, the asked to remain anonymous. <laughs>
1: <laughs> they don't want big grain finding well, out.
0: you know, when you're in an industry that is very small and 98% of the people in it are very bullish for like very, mm-hmm. very important reasons to them, you don't want to be known as the one person who went around and ruined the party. So grain is what we call Fungible. So that means you can use it for a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. Um, So you can use it as is. You can feed it to animals. You can mill it, Mill like turn it into flour, grits, whatever, any kind of grain. You can usually mill it into some kind of like human food, flour, cornmeal, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. You can use it to make alcohol, very popular. And nowadays also people tend to use it to make fuel as well. So there's like four big different market channels for grains. Unlike tomatoes, which, like, either humans eat or humans eat, you know? <laughs> you know? Like, you can eat them. There
1: are no animals that eat tomatoes.
0: I mean, they do, but people will pay, like, two bucks a pound for tomatoes. No. Animal feed is, like, not that value,
1: right? Okay, that makes more sense.
0: Yeah, so, like, actually when you have a plant where you're, like, bringing in, like, fresh whole tomatoes that are destined to go to the supermarket, you'll have some that are kind of, like, squished, mm-hmm. and sometimes they'll stick them in a coal bin and take them to, a like, a cattle feed lot. Mm-hmm. But that's, like waste disposal more than it is like we're buying cattle feed, if that makes sense.
1: Okay. That does make um, sense. I feel like that was a dumb question.
0: No, it's it's a really good <laughs> question actually. There are no dumb questions in grain trade. So
1: <laughs> Or tomato <laughs>
0: Yeah, it was just like it takes, it takes a certain amount of money to raise tomatoes and then mm-hmm. there's a certain amount of nutritional value it delivers to a cow and they don't match up, right? It is oh, okay. too much work to grow tomatoes to feed them to cows, right? Which is why we tend to use grain for that because it's a lot less work per like unit mm-hmm. uh, calories. So as someone in produce... We don't really deal with the animal feed market that much, but it's kind of a staple of at least what the U.S. grain market does. A lot of their product goes to feeding animals, right? So that's a place where we're different. Mm-hmm. Uh, handling produce is also just a lot more of a pain in the ass. Like, there's no way to put it. Tomatoes squish. Like, you can crush them. They get juicy. They leak everywhere. They get moldy. Grain doesn't really do that. Yeah. Uh, if you harvest it wrong, if it's still too wet, it can mold. And well, they have, like, big drying facilities for that. And it starts out with way less water in it than tomatoes do. They're, like... 90, 95 plus percent water. Yeah. So you can dry grain and it takes a lot less energy per like finished unit of product than it does to like say dry tomatoes. And therefore
1: a lot less money. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So grain is a great cheap staple item. So it's funny to me that people talk about, oh, the U S like focuses on grain and like we overgrow too much grain compared to produce because subsidies. And I'm like, no bitch, it's less work. <laughs> it has always been less work to grow grain, traffic grain, harvest grain, preserve yeah. grain. It has a lot more things you can do with it. Mm-hmm. So, like, if you have a glut of tomatoes on the market, it's like, well, people are done eating tomatoes. There's only so much we can turn into sauce in the cookers. You know, like, there's only so much you can do with tomatoes, right? Whereas grain, you've got, it's cheap to ship compared to other things, so it's easy to send it somewhere else where people need it. There's a lot of other things you can make it into. That's why grain is a popular thing to grow.
1: Well, I'm slightly offended that you don't think we need a national salsa reserve, Sarah, (coughs) but I respect that opinion. (laughs)
0: I'm not saying it's wrong to have it. It's just that's something that it's not something the US is really focused on.
1: It should Um, be. Yeah, but in terms of. I was promised a taco truck on every corner.
0: Yeah, that didn't really come through, did it? (laughs) So uh, historically, growing grain for long distance export has always been a thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Athens did not feed itself because they're in like dry, rocky, hilly Greece.
1: Yeah.
0: So Athens started putting grain colonies in Ukraine. In like 600 BC mm-hmm. hmm. Yeah so Athens Cradle of democracy asterisk, Was built on colonizing Ukraine for grain Because Ukraine just has really nice dirt It's always been a great place to grow grain So it has a long history of grain exports That so goes back two and a half thousand years at least Wow uh, mm-hmm. Yeah so growing bulk grain For export is not a new concept Cargill didn't invent that <laughs> How know, like... did
1: they dry grain Back in those days? I uh, mean, surely with technology, it's become easier.
0: Yeah. I mean, wheat I
1: sun. Oh, yeah, sorry, wheat,
0: wheat and barley were their main crops. And okay. those tend to come ripe, like, in June-ish when it mm-hmm. starts to get really hot.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: It depends on where you are. But the, typically, like, back in the day, that's how it was done. So, yeah, like, growing lots and lots of grain in specific areas and then trucking it really far and using it for a lot of different things has just always been a thing, right? Mm-hmm anywhere people grow grain. So that is not a modern agribusiness invention. I would say subsidies come from the fact that people already love to grow grain and they're already doing it. And they're like, hey, send me more money for this thing I'm already doing. They are not the reason. <laughs> they are not the reason that our food system revolves around grain. It's more like our food system already revolved around grain. So the people who are involved in that trade were like, give us more money. Yeah. Is how that happened. So let's talk about the mechanics. You may have heard about things like futures. This is a commodity features <laughs> are a scintillating subject but they're actually really important for understanding like what happened with the grain markets this summer
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, this preceding summer and spring i'm getting hungry <laughs> they're talking about food and i'm just like
1: oh it's lunchtime i'm glad you said it because i'm sitting here thinking i'm gonna get street tacos after this <laughs> it's like me just down the road mm-hmm.
0: so the folks who are selling grain further away
1: <laughs> should
0: <laughs> so- we just stop for lunch I'm like losing it. I don't have enough blood sugar. I'm like, I can't explain the green future. It's great. <laughs> you want to grab lunch? I'm, I'm down to grab lunch. Let's eat lunch. It's green time. So mechanics of green trading. Okay. So you have something that's really easy to grow in bulk, Mm -hmm. really easy to store, really. It's not like easy to store and ship around just compared to like tomatoes, apples, like other fruit. So it's still a pain in the ass to handle. Like before we invented bulk cargo ships and like shipping containers and like giant augers that can move tons of it an hour. It was typically like, I don't know, like 50 pound sacks was usually how they moved it. So you have to get the whole harvest into 50 pound sacks. You have to get guys to like stack them in a cart, haul them to the docks, Mm -hmm. get guys to like throw them into the ship. When you land at the next port, get guys to pull them back out. So it's not easy to handle. Mm -hmm. You still have to keep it dry, keep the rodents out, stuff like that. So it's Mm -hmm. not effortless. That's going to come up later. It is actually kind of expensive to move and store grain. But compared to other food crops, it is the easiest, the cheapest to move around. So that's why grain kind of preferentially becomes a long distance trade thing. And Mm -hmm. then also like, oh, this is an easy thing to make the staple of the food system. Because if we run out of enough here, it's easy to bring in more. Mm -hmm. That's why grain is popular. So once you have a product that's relatively easy to like ship store traffic, you've got to find ways to manage that, right? You're like, okay, I've got this silo full of stuff. How do I know how long it's going to last? How do I know where it needs to go? We may have different grain crops that ripen at different times. Just how do we manage the flow of this? Especially nowadays in a global context where we may be shipping grain all over the world. How do we decide where it goes? Say you're a flour mill Mm -hmm. and you're like, okay, people buy flour for me at a steady clip But wheat in my area gets harvested in June. I don't have silos big enough to store a year's worth because grain is expensive to store. Mm -hmm. Again, you got to like patrol it. You got to keep the rodents out. You got to keep the rain out. Like there's facilities involved. So your grain basically has to pay rent (laughs) on the facility you're holding it into, right? It costs money to keep it there. So you can either build a year's worth of silos to store your stuff, or you can buy a month's worth once a month and kind of like chew through that in your mill and then sell it, right? So if you're buying a month's worth at a time, typically we do that through futures. Yeah. Uh, so this is why we have commodity futures, right? So I'm a mill. I want to make flour. I want to make sure I have a consistent supply. And of course, if it's harvested in my area in June, that's when it's going to be the cheapest, right? Because mm-hmm. it's right here. It's fresh. It hasn't had to sit around in a silo and basically pay rent on that silo that it takes to maintain that silo, right? So that's going to be your cheapest stuff. And then the most expensive stuff typically is going to be like the month before that. Because that's when your area has the least grain left in it. So you're having to get it from further and further away, right? Mm -hmm. So you kind of build that up into, okay, we've got a whole planet full of wheat mills, say. So they're all trying to kind of like manage their schedule. They're all in different areas. And this leads to like a global futures market. So like I'm a mill in Minneapolis. Gosh, I think they they harvest their wheat a little bit later. So like, I don't know, July, August. I they don't really grow wheat in Iowa.
1: I imagine that they do. <laughs> it's, it rains a lot.
0: About. It's a corn place. We'll say Kansas. Okay, Kansas in June. So I'm in Kansas. I'm a mill. I want to make sure I have wheat flour year-round, or like I have wheat to turn into flour year-round. Uh-huh. Uh, June is going to be the easiest time. I can buy it from a farm or an elevator that's right next door.
1: Mm-hmm. But
0: come January, March,
1: mm-hmm.
0: it's got to come from somewhere else. Or it's got to come from silos in my area that have been holding it in like keeping the rats away, doing the, the mold patrol for several months. Right. Yeah. And then also depending on the year, there may not be enough wheat in Kansas. Like, cause it's, maybe it's all been shipped out already. So you kind of like, you'll have grain regions kind of like oozing grain back and forth. So like one of, one of my grain trading colleagues, the way she put it is grain doesn't flow. It oozes, which I love.
1: <laughs> Cause I was it, just going to comment like that's an interesting way to put it that grain oozes
0: mm-hmm. mm, ooze. it's kind of sticky like it doesn't just like flow across long distances what will happen is if you're a place that needs grain you're going to keep buying it until you're full like there's a certain amount that you need mm-hmm. once you've kind of hit that cap you're like well I don't need more so then it'll start flowing into adjacent areas if that makes sense Yeah. so it kind of you fill up the barrel in one area of what they need and then it kind of starts spilling over into other areas yeah it's how a grain tends to move so it's not exactly like a free-willing, like, it's not like you squeeze a balloon and all the air, like, immediately goes out. It's more kind of like it oozes. There's all these different little compartments. It's like a house with a lot of different little rooms in it. You know, it kind of, like, slowly distributes and spreads from one place to another as one place's demand fills up. And again, the way that's managed is futures. If you're buying futures, again, if you're trying to buy wheat during your harvest season, it's very easy. If you're trying to buy it from, fur- like, not during your harvest season, you got to get it from further away. So I feel like a thing that happened... When Russian invaded Ukraine,
1: mm-hmm.
0: was people went? Oh no! You know, twenty five percent of the world's wheat exports gone. Right? Ukraine produces twenty five percent of the world's wheat. Depends on the year. Oh, um, wow. yeah, but like they are a big wheat exporter. Mm-hmm. What I found was somehow people thought that was the only place that wheat comes from. Mm-hmm. People are not bright. Well, not like here is the thing is like I feel like anytime we're talking agriculture, at least in the United States. People just like lose their damn minds. <laughs> and it's, it's yeah. not spontaneous. I feel like in many ways, like the general American is trained to behave this way. Trained not to think about agriculture in a very critical way, because we've been raised on little house on the prairie, um, mm-hmm. a whole lot of farmers yelling, you don't know how it is, but then they never tell you how it is. Yeah. Uh huh. <laughs> the way we talk about agriculture and food supplies in the United States is very much based around, we need to make the general public feel ashamed and guilty. That's okay. the way we tend to talk about it. In agriculture, there's a lot of like, oh, those dumb consumers don't know anything. Like, well, do you ever tell them what you do on a day-to-day basis? Like, really? Like, do you ever sit them down and go like, this is a grain future. This is how I use grain futures to sell my grain. No, you don't. Why should they know if you're never saying it?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Like,
0: if you're running a business and you're holding all your cards that close to your chest, you can't bitch that other people don't know what you're up to. Okay? (laughs) (laughs) And as a result, anytime you have... Actually, confusing and eventful things happening in the food system, people don't know what to make of the information. I think that's a lot of it. So, I think this is what happens when you have an information vacuum and people get confused. You know, so we get statistics like 25% ish of the world's foreign, like grain exports to other countries, has now evaporated, right? And what people heard when they saw that was 25% of the world's wheat, period,
1: mm-hmm.
0: is now inaccessible. I think that's what people heard.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, we're going to talk about grain export markets. And the difference between thick and thin markets, because that will help us understand what that 25% actually means.
1: (laughs) Okay, great. Yeah. So what are thick and thin markets? Mm. To start. It's like, I like my markets like I like my men. Rich. (laughs) (laughs) Thick. Um, (laughs) Whatever, as long
0: as they're rich. Right, yeah. It's like, open-minded over here. Um... (laughs) (laughs) It's funny. So you have things like, like wheat and rice behave very differently on global markets. I'm going to tell you why. The two biggest countries that use them the most are China and India, right? So these are countries that both have like over a billion people in them. Mm-hmm. So they're growing a lot of rice, but are they exporting a lot of it? Not really, because they got a billion people eating rice. Mm-hmm. So most of that is grown for home consumption. We still have countries that grow a lot for export, but the proportion of rice that gets moved to another country is pretty low. Because most of it gets grown is grown in India or China, and then they keep it and eat it rather than exporting it, right? Okay. So that's two to three billion people's worth of rice just from those two countries. Wow. Yeah. So the rest of the global rice trade compared to that is not very much. Yeah. So if you take the amount of rice that gets grown and eaten in the world, most of it is eaten in the country that it's grown in. So the amount, like the percentage that is going traded between countries is fairly small compared to the amount that gets eaten. I don't know what the percentage is, but like it's going to be more in like the 5 to 30% range.
1: Okay.
0: Like it's a relatively small slice of the world's rice supply moving across international borders. So that's what we call a thin market. Like it's a thin market for grain exports and imports. So if China or India for some reason has a bad rice harvest, good luck buying enough rice to replace it on the international market. Is what that means, right? So that's okay. why both of those countries have pretty aggressive storage programs. Okay. Yeah. And it's so funny because I feel like at least in the U S we kind of go like, Oh, it's because they have weird forms of government. I'm like, it's because they have a billion people Yeah. (laughs) and a grain that is very difficult to source anywhere else in that volume. So a
1: thin market refers to them not exporting it.
0: Yeah. It just means like the amount of that product that is moving across international borders is fairly low.
1: Okay. Mm -hmm.
0: Whereas something like wheat is very thick. So we have a lot of wheat exporting regions So we have a lot of countries with lots and lots of land, but not very many people. So the United States, Mm -hmm. Canada, Argentina-ish, Australia is a big one, South Africa a little bit to a lesser extent. India also recently became a big wheat exporter because they've just been aggressively (laughs) like subsidizing and supporting their wheat production to the point where it now exceeds what what even they with a billion plus people can use. Mm-hmm. Um, so India actually kind of came in just in time with that uh, to fill in a lot of the shortfall that came from Ukraine. So India for the win. India for the win. So there's there's a lot of like internal politics within India that I'm not going to lie to you. I don't understand. And I'm not going to try and make this into a The Politics of India podcast. You're not an
1: expert on the politics of India?
0: I know. What? It's hard to believe. Shocking. You know, this is crazy because people ask me like, well, what's happening with agriculture in India? And I'm like, dude, it's a country with a billion people in it many of whom speak English. Maybe you could ask one of them. They might know what's <laughs> happening over there. It's like, it is so much work just to uncover what's happening in the United States. That's a whole nother country. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. With languages that you don't speak. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. The kind of information that y'all are looking for, like you want to have somebody who's actually on the ground and can speak to that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I wish I knew who that was. If you're out there, I would love to talk to you. <laughs> Do you want to be
1: on the pod?
0: Yeah. (laughs) It's just, it's really inappropriate to ask an American, so can you tell me what's happening with, like, the great economy in India? You're like, there's some people over there who might know. You could ask them. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I was like, I'd love to be an expert on that, but it's it's not. Like, it's it's actually okay to have a domain of expertise that is not universal. Um,
1: Absolutely. And always good to have firsthand sources. Yeah. So in a thick grain market, so we have all these countries, like the U.S.,
0: Canada, Australia with lot, they're growing lots and lots of wheat. And compared to the number of people that they have in the country and the amount of, like, wheat they need for internal use, the amount of wheat they're growing is way, way larger than that. So most of their wheat goes to export markets. So a high proportion of the wheat that is grown in the world is eaten in a different country than where it's grown. So, like, the proportion of wheat that is exported versus eaten in country is a lot higher for wheat.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: that's what we call a thick grain market. So that means if one area has a crop failure or shortage or an export problem where another country invaded them and they can't export their wheat, there's a lot of other places to get it from. So that's what the difference between a thin and a thick grain market is, right? So rice is a great example of a very thin global grain market and wheat is a very good example of a thick one. So when people were talking about 25% of the world's wheat exports come from Ukraine. Number one, There's a big difference between the total amount of wheat in the world and the amount that's getting exported. I'm glad
1: you clarified that because when you you. say 25% of the world's wheat market, I'm thinking like the world's wheat. Oh yeah, exports. So wheat
0: compared to rice is a very thick export market, but still the total amount of wheat being grown in the world is 778 million tons. The amount that we're expecting to lose to Russia's invasion of Ukraine was 7 million. So that's less than 1% of the total wheat crop, not 25%. (laughs) Wow. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so like that, that's how much we're losing. 7 million tons sounds like a lot. But when you have a global production that's 778 million tons, it kind of puts it into perspective. And it, go, it makes you go, oh, maybe we could make this up elsewhere, especially in a thick export market. Absolutely. I think another thing that kind of caused panic was when reporters were reporting, mm-hmm. this much of the world's wheat supply or wheat exports comes from Ukraine. It was framed as it's the only place you can grow wheat somehow, or like that's how people <laughs> heard that. Wheat is kind of omnivorous when it comes to where it grows. Like, different varietals, like, tend to prefer different places. But globally, like, there's a reason wheat kind of took over the planet. You can grow it in a lot of different places. The reason Ukraine became such a big source of it is because it's centrally located, not because it's, like, a special wheat country. It's right there on the Black Sea. So it's very close to a lot of North Africa, a lot of the Middle East. You can go through the Suez Canal and get to South Asia. Mm -hmm. So it's centrally located that's why Greece was colonizing them for grain, you know, two and a half thousand years ago. It's just right there. It's very close to a lot of arid regions in the world. You know, Greece, a lot of the Mediterranean, North Africa, Egypt also became a major grain exporter for the same reason. They just don't do that anymore for like just other reasons that we're not getting into today. But yeah, like Ukraine is centrally located and it's also a good place to grow wheat, but it is not the only place you can get wheat from. So a lot of what happened with places In the middle east north africa experiencing a wheat shortage was that their immediate supply got cut off the one that was closest to them india and australia had plenty of wheat to cover the shortfall they were just further away so it takes the boats longer to get there and because people in rich countries who have a lot of influence over global trade policy Mm -hmm. were busy going nuts telling themselves oh my gosh there's a wheat shortage driving up prices it made it very difficult to get wheat from those places that had plenty into the places that actually needed it because people in rich countries are starting to hoard it. And that's where we get into commodity futures. Oh, okay. So that, yeah, that's what happened there.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. It's almost like it was beneficial for them to pretend that there was a scarcity.
0: Yeah. Hmm. Well, like, pretend is such a strong word. You know, like, people are really good at truly believing anything that's convenient for them. (laughs) True. So it's like I'm sure plenty of them truly believe there was a shortage in the making. They just also didn't do the math to check it. <laughs> Cuz if they had, they would have come up with a different answer. But you don't do the math unless you want the answer. You know what I mean? I was really surprised at how you can look up the stats. They're all publicly available. And I was really surprised how many people and reporters seemed to behave as if nobody could possibly know what quantity of wheat there was. I'm like, "It's fucking arithmetic, y'all. Like <laughs> Google. 2022 India wheat harvest. You'll get some numbers."
1: Oh, I think American journalism has... Oh, you know what? That's a side conversation. Never
0: mind. <laughs> it's, it's gone down the tubes, yeah. Well, It's not just that people lack the capacity. It seemed to never occur to most people who are talking about this that you could look up the data and do some math. Like, that was a thing well, that they kind want of... It
1: spoon-fed to them. They don't want to actually do the work. If
0: you're writing an article about it, it feels like you should Google it.
1: <laughs> that makes too much sense. There will yeah. never be another deep throat mm-hmm. or, like, another... yeah
0: yeah so like watergate yeah and you can have all kinds of conversations about how do we know these national figures are accurate particularly Mm -hmm. for like china's grain stockpiles how do we know like yeah how much is actually in there how do we know any country's national stockpile figures are accurate or harvest figures are accurate but no one was even having that conversation they weren't even looking up the official numbers yeah it was crazy to watch they just you had a whole lot of folks writing stories just kind of go like will there be enough and i'm like well you could do the math and find out yourself actually
1: (laughs) so much easier, though, to use scare tactics. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Because then you get people to click. So that was Absolutely. wild.
1: And that was as very,
0: I, for the record, that was super stressful. Um, <laughs> being the one <laughs> dumbass on Twitter who can apparently Google and use math. Yeah, because I'm just like looking at the figures and I'm going, look, guys, there's the math shows that there's plenty. It's in these other places. It will take them time to get there. If we're worried about localized and regional shortages, which are very real in the Middle East, North Africa, even a local food shortage can still kill you. This is a very real problem. Yeah. The way to solve it is not throwing ourselves into tailspin panicking. It is to go, how can we get boats filled up in India, Australia with grain as soon as possible and get them where we need to go? Mm -hmm. That's how you solve the problem. And we weren't looking at that Mm -hmm. because people were too busy like just getting themselves into a tizzy thinking, is there going to be enough? I'd better hoard some right now. (laughs) Crazy. So when that is the environment, I'm out there doing the math, kind of showing my work, showing my sources and people will get really upset particularly people involved in the green trading business who <laughs> had made some bullish bets <laughs> there's this one account called at Russian green trader that was like how dare you really <laughs> yeah that was a good one what an awful name
1: yeah I was like with that handle do you think anyone's gonna listen to you <laughs> I almost have to believe that's satire no surely that is oh they were a hundred percent sincere oh, wow mm-hmm
0: sometimes you just get lost in your own shtick, you know? Uh,
1: Clearly, yeah.
0: (laughs) But I mean, like, if you're in a business where you have a good reason to be bullish on green prices and you're surrounded by a bunch of other colleagues who also have good reason to be Mm -hmm. bullish on it, you're going to be living in an echo chamber. And you're also aggressively chasing after anyone else in the industry who is actually doing the math and telling them they're wrong. You are stuck in an echo chamber. (laughs) So, yeah, that was good times. So, yeah, so it was a really weird time. I was doing, again, like the one kind of outlet I have to get information out to the public is Twitter. So I'm just like constantly tweeting, like, here are the actual statistics on wheat. And there were people going to the UN and going, there's not going to be enough. And I'm like, they didn't do the math. (laughs) (laughs) Or like, there's only this much, you know, like grain stockpiles left in the world this many weeks. I'm like, that's how much the UN recommends there be. That's not a shortage. That's the amount they're supposed to be.
1: Were these like diplomats that speak at the UN? That were pushing this agenda or, or were these somehow... there was one who
0: was the grown child of a UN diplomat who now runs a commodity trading business. <laughs> <laughs> or like an agricultural. Why am I tech. Yeah. It was like an ag data startup and they're like, There might not be enough. We're gonna need ag data. Yeah. <laughs> they were doing this at the UN. I was like, how do they get in the door?
1: Oh, nepotism will be the death of
0: us all. But that was big news for a week or two. Like, there were big, scary headlining articles at The Economist and other publications. And I'm like, did anyone involved in this ever do the math?
1: Well, Sarah, to be fair, no one likes math. Mm -hmm. But I mean, if you're speaking in front of the UN, you probably should do the math.
0: Yeah, you should.
1: They were like, this is our secret data that shows there won't be enough. And I'm like, where's your
0: secret data? Because it looks to me like you're using all the same national statistics that I am. (laughs) (laughs) but somehow you got a different answer and you won't show your, like, you won't show your work. It's crazy. Proprietary. Yeah, so that's, yeah. I'm like, this is a hustle. I love this for you. So yeah, that was, it was a really scary time because you always kind of go like, am I crazy? Because everyone else seems to think there's not going to be enough. Like, maybe I am wrong. Maybe b- the p- trillions of people are going to starve and it's all going to be my fault because I told everyone it was fine. But you keep using your numbers and you keep running your data and it is what it is. And I looked at everybody else who was beating the drum about how there's not going to be enough and they were not using math and data. So like- Stick to your guns. Yeah, come July. Like I said, that was kind of one of the things I was telling people was wheat is not harvested in the fall. It's harvested in the spring, in the Mm -hmm. summer. So like this evasion starts in February. I was like, the next wheat harvests are going to start coming in soon. Mm -hmm. We don't have to make it through the whole summer. We just have to make it through like four to six to eight, 12 weeks, right? Mm -hmm. There's more coming actually soon. Like We have so many wheat growing regions in different parts of the world and different hemispheres that there's always one about to knock out a harvest, right? You're never that far away from another wheat harvest. That's the beauty of a thick market. It was funny because they were like, oh, there's a drought in the South Plains of the United States. And I'm like, that's Texas. There's always a drought in the South Plains. The average yield per acre there is like 10 bushels. Yeah. So if you want to know the world is crazy... In Texas, you know, South Texas, they're pulling 10 bushels an acre of wheat and they're using like bajillion dollar combines to do it. In India, they're pulling like 60 to 80 on a really, really good day, maybe a hundred bushels of wheat off an acre. And they're doing it by hand. Oh my God. Yeah. You want to know the world is insane? That's proof. Anyway, (laughs) so like, by the way, this entire bumper crop where India like really came in clutch and kind of kept a lot of the Middle East and North Africa out of extreme, extreme hunger... Of which there's still some risk, but like they really kept the worst of it from happening. India was harvesting most of that by hand. That is like folks out there squatting in a field with a sickle. That was millions of tons of wheat harvested by hand. They
1: did that. Wow.
0: Mm -hmm. Wow. So like that's a logistical feat I would just like to take a moment to appreciate. The wage rates, believe it or not, for squatting in a field with a sickle and harvesting just one part of the millions of tons of grain, the wages are not good. That Um, doesn't surprise me. Yeah, believe it or not. So for this reason, wheat in India is usually priced a little bit higher than what world export markets will support, which is why as they were growing more and more of it, it was just kind of building up in India because it's a little bit too expensive for anybody else to buy. Mm. And so they're kind of like bursting with it. (laughs) So fortunately, like global grain prices did rise enough that it was like, okay, India we will take your grain now. (laughs) (laughs) Like your hand harvested artisanal millions of tons of grain. (laughs) (laughs) But, like, if you're going to pay people hand-harvesting wheat a living wage, wheat is going to be really expensive. So I I don't really love the thing of, like, oh, well, you know, if we pay tomato pickers a living wage, then we won't be able to afford food. It's actually not that much for tomatoes. But the harvest logistics of wheat are different enough that, like, paying a viable, like, the equivalent of $15 an hour wage for hand-harvesting wheat, not really viable.
1: Well, they're not paying them $15 an hour, are
0: they? You can't.
1: Yeah.
0: Like, that just doesn't... Like, you can't have affordable food and a high wage for hand harvesting it. This is why automation is a beautiful thing, Mm -hmm. if the benefits of it are distributed to people appropriately, which is not how farm automation usually tends to work. It's the landowner who buys a tractor, and then they just kick all the people out and fire them, and then they wind up doing other low-wage work in a slum somewhere. Yay. So I don't think there is a country that has figured out how do we automate farm work without leading to a huge impoverished like masses of think of how many people it takes to hand harvest millions of tons of wheat, right?
1: I can't. How I, many I can't people begin must to that grasp to. take?
0: Millions of people, right? I would assume. So you bring in combines and instantly millions of people are mass unemployed. Not that their job was awesome to begin with, but is there a better livelihood out there? If there was, they probably wouldn't be hand harvesting wheat. So there's a whole economic proposition behind that. Yeah, we're getting down a rabbit hole now. I'm just saying, okay, auto, yeah. fair enough. automating farm work and distributing the benefits of it is hard. And no one has figured it out yet. Yeah. And I have some thoughts, but that's a different episode. So <laughs> like, it's the, the socioeconomic context of every country is different. So one thing that works like maybe in the US wouldn't necessarily work in India or vice versa. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, I don't want to be out here being like, I'm going to tell India what to do. Um, I got all the answers. Literally nobody has figured that out. So... <laughs> We're just here to talk about thick and thin markets and commodity futures. That is how we did it in the U.S. for quite some time. And then we were like,
1: fuck this. You're right. You're Mm -hmm. right. I just, I don't think, God, I hate to sound like a boomer. I Mm -hmm. I don't think people (laughs) nowadays would do that. Well, no. That's literally why
0: we invented combines. It was because people back then didn't want to do it. Absolutely. No difference. No difference. There is so much ground to cover on this topic. This episode started to make more sense as a two-parter. Or potentially maybe a more-parter. Join us next time for the rest of the story.